You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we are back in the studio, the same studio this time. Um, so Actually getting to sit across from the, each other. And- yeah. It's going to be kind of nice. This is going to make my next editing run so much easier because <laughs> I'm not having to match up five different files and things like that. So I made the drive for you, man. I appreciate it. <laughs> and uh, also that you, you, know, you don't have to turn off the air to record here. It's helpful. This is true. It's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, and we are getting some really hot days here. Next week, it's supposed to be up to like 102 here in Norman. Don't even talk like that. But, you know, I, I'm actually better with that than like the 20s and the teens. And yeah. so, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I much prefer it to be warm than to be freezing. So oh, yeah. I'm with you on that. So, well, last time, uh, last time we were here, we were talking about Samuel. Right. And we're going to be talking about Samuel for quite well, a bit longer. The, the book, the first book of first Samuel. First not, Samuel. Yeah. Not we were, the person so much. Yeah. Cause he hasn't been on scene for a while and he's not going to be on scene for a while. Um, but we were actually finishing up the section with um, King Saul and the evil spirit from the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to address some of the questions that the people in the paddle store had brought in, uh, brought up. Uh, we'd already addressed Josh's um, question that he had, he discussed and we're moving into the two Christines. They had questions <laughs> that um, kind of played off each other and they were good questions. And I really appreciated the fact that um, they reminded me of some things to look at some things that I might not have thought of. And that's why we have to be doing Bible study and community. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody is exempt from that, even me. So one of the fun things I like to do uh, just to put a plug out there for the paddle store um, if you're a Patreon member, then you get access. But one of the things we get to do is um, I toss out the passage that I'm working on and I ask people to help me write my show notes so that I know I'm talking about the things that other people want to talk about. Yep. And I'm not just geeking out over something I want to geek out on. Sure, sure. And yeah, I mean, that, and it's a good place too, because we do get some discussion going on there before the show starts. And also, it, but if you are not a member and you want to send us a question, we'll try to get to it. Absolutely. Uh, just, you know, hit us up, uh, send us a message. Oh, yeah. And, and that is not a bother. It actually helps. And I know a lot of times I'm really hesitant to reach out to someone because I think, oh, I'm imposing on their time or I'm just being an inconvenience. And I, I never feel that way. Um, I might take a little bit to get back to you, mm-hmm. but I will get back to you whenever I can. And uh, it helps me really know what are the questions people have about the Bible. So, um, yeah, never be shy about reaching out. So the reason why the two Christines, I'm getting used to this new desk here, which you just created for us over the, the break. And, you know, I should point it out. Nathan made this all by himself. And so. Well, well, Mickey helped with the finish and stuff. And, but the design, yeah. you know, ground up, you did everything but the finishing, but that's typically, you know, 
that's what we do. You know, the gals come along and make y'all guys work look better. So mm -hmm. anyway, but yeah, and it's cool setup. It looks like a real studio in here now. It's better than the TV trays. By I, I like a it long much. Shot. I like working on it much better than the TV <laughs> trays. But you know, we use what we got until we can get better. So, uh, but anyway, the two Christines, uh, they had. Uh, asked two questions that kind of hinged off each other because they both played on the theme of madness. And so uh, the first Christine, and not I'm not ranking them in order of importance just by who asked the questions first. Yeah, so, well. Um, yeah, she talked about um, how this played into you know King Saul's madness. How did it play into King Nebuchadnezzar's madness over in Daniel? Hmm. And so that was a really great uh, parallel, and we're going to talk a lot about that. The second, Christine, she brought it from uh, a question from the perspective of how do we interpret this madness of King Saul? Is it demon possession? Is it mental illness? And, you know, what are the implications of understanding it either way? So yeah. we're going to look at both of those issues. So I definitely think we kind of tackled and got rid of the demon possession thing last week right that, that that's not the case yeah so i want to really focus in on the madness issue and mental illness because that is a a topic that's near and dear to my heart and i know that several other people uh matter of fact just got out of a conversation just moments before we started recording with another woman who has bipolar uh ptsd anxiety depression all these things that we 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 know people suffer from now so we're going to talk about why that's not the end of the road for any believer ever. And so, uh, you know, our fate doesn't have to be the same as King Saul's. Okay. That looks interesting. Yeah. So we're going to start off uh, beginning with looking at um, Nebuchadnezzar and King Saul. I mean, obviously we've got two very different kings. Uh, king Saul is the king of Israel. He's the king of God's chosen people, and he's part of the covenant community. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of Babylon, uh, one of the nations that God disavows in uh, Deuteronomy 32 and whenever he uh, scatters the nations, they're appointed another ruler. They aren't appointed God of heaven, the Yahweh. Right. So um, whenever you're in this this covenant community like King Saul is and occupying that position of being a representative of the God of Israel, that puts him in a completely different situation than King Nebuchadnezzar. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it, and on the in the beginning, it kind of looks why would looks like we should ask why and how do these two stories intersect? But the um, the word here that we're looking at when God strikes people with madness in Daniel, and make sure I get my notes right. When God strikes people with with madness, and that's exactly what He does to Nebuchadnezzar. It, it's the idea of judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very clear that with King Saul, that the evil spirit sent by God was judgment. Mm -hmm. And that is promised in the Torah for those who, who violate the Torah. That's Deuteronomy 28, 28. And it says, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of the mind. So this is definitely something God does when you break covenant with him. And there are consequences, and I think this is particularly true when you're looking at someone who's supposed to be your direct stand-in and direct representative. Mm -hmm. And you know, so we need to be aware there are consequences. And now, Nebuchadnezzar's story is kind of interesting because it follows the fiery furnace events. Now, real quick recap, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They wouldn't worship the image created by Nebuchadnezzar. They uh, get thrown into the fiery uh, uh, furnace. Nebuchadnezzar looks in. He sees four guys walking around inside the flames. Mm -hmm. The flames are so hot, they kill the people looking in on the flames or who throw the the man in. I'm trying to remember. But, uh, you know, it's a big deal. So when when that happens, Nebuchadnezzar has this response, and I'm going to read it. This is Daniel 4.3. How great are the signs, how mighty are his wonders. The, his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking about the God of Israel. Mm-hmm. So he is making the correct confession. He's saying the right things. And he's basically um, telling everyone that this is the God who, who deserves to be worshipped. He's saying that he understands who this God is. He even tells the people, all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, that uh, they're established by God. And he, he, seems, he seems to have suddenly got this great insight into theology. And with his public um, profession of who God is, then now we know that having have this revelation knowledge of who God is, he... he he doesn't have an excuse. Right. He, he doesn't have a reason to turn this down. So in verse 18, we, we start to see, though, that despite this great public outpouring of, of praise for God, he really doesn't get it. He tells Daniel, the spirit of the holy gods, the holy Elohim, is in you. So he, he's still not getting it. And so this is when we're starting to move into Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Daniel interprets the dream, and the dream basically means that um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to live like a beast in the field. He's going to eat grass. The dew is going to cover him, which means he's not going to have any shelter. And he's sleeping outside. Yeah. So, and Daniel says this is so he will know, yada, he will intimately experience the knowledge that God is truly the one God of the earth. Yeah. So, if we continue, we, we realize that this has a very specific intention that God is trying to accomplish and that God is successful with it. When uh, Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, he proclaims God's glory and power. As a matter of fact, he says uh, to, to Daniel, I lost my place where he said it, but anyway, he, he proclaims God's glory and power, and that's the final word we hear from him. We, we don't hear anymore. That's the conclusion of his story. It's like God got him to acknowledge that God is the only God. God truly is the king of the earth. We don't need to know any more about this guy, and the only time we hear anything more of his name is just in a genealogy, and so um, the stories are connected. Now, do you think that was repentance or, do, or just an acknowledgment? That's a really good question, because a lot of times in the Old Testament, there isn't a lot of repentance. Right. Uh, those, those moments of repentance are really very few and far between. And, you know, we get all the way to Judah in Genesis before we have anybody repent. Mm-hmm. And that's almost at the end of the book. And so, um, but it does seem with what he says, and I, I know I've got it in here somewhere, maybe we just aren't, aren't to it yet. But he seems to be pretty sincere in understanding what he's saying. So I, I think maybe there's room for the idea that Nebuchadnezzar did decide that, yes, this is the God he needed to follow. Yeah. And, but the, the stories are connected because, one, we have kings. Mm-hmm. 
Two, they are struck by evil spirits. Uh, Saul's got the evil spirit from the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar's is the Holy One. Daniel uh, says uh, the Holy One from the Lord is is the one who's showing up in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. They call um, they call it a watcher. Okay. So whenever you hear that word uh, watcher on TV shows or movies, it, it when it's talking about spiritual beings, they're referring back to this. This is not something that Hollywood came up with. I've heard people say that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but they're both supernatural beings that accomplish God's spiritual purpose in the physical world. And their job is to create a reality that God has declared needs to happen. Now, um, the the problem that Saul and Nebuchadnezzar both share is that they both forget their place. Mm-hmm. Saul forgets that he's the king, but yes, he's still subject to God's rule and authority, and he shouldn't overstep his bounds. And we see that you know, when he's offering the sacrifice, he's not doing what God told him to with Agag. It's, it's all a matter of not knowing one's proper position before the Lord. And that's specifically what Daniel was telling Nebuchadnezzar, so that you know who this God is. This is what's going to happen. And um, God, you know, he's not having it. He doesn't want anything to do with this. If, he, if he's going to be God, he's going to be God. Mm-hmm. You don't get any half-hearted chances to do this. So it's all or nothing. Um, I will not break out in song. So, <laughs> but you know, we have to respect God's sovereignty. And so if we accept the premise that I went into last week, that this evil spirit was actually sent to bring Saul to repentance, then we do see that with, with Nebuchadnezzar, mm-hmm. that there is this turning uh, within him. <clears throat> and so he concludes, this is Nebuchadnezzar's final statement. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now if a pagan king from Babylon, considered to be one of the most evil places in all of the world, can be confronted by God in this way and turn to God and praise him this way, then the king of Israel is without excuse. Fair enough. I, I think that's the reason why that story is so important, because once again, we're, we're seeing why Saul can't be the king of Israel, mm-hmm. how he fails on all these different fronts. So um, Christine had made the observation, and they're, they're confirmed by what Nebuchadnezzar said, but I just wanted to read what she said, what Christine said. God is the one who will bring justice to those who ignore his words and consider themselves above all earthly ramifications. And she's right. And this is exactly where God comes in and says, I'm going to change reality. I'm going to change the, the ruler of a nation. And when you change the ruler of a nation, you change a nation. Sure. So um, I, you know, we can see that. So I think it's really good for us to be able to, to look at these stories and contrast them and see that when they play off each other, the depths of Saul's sin is just put on display. I mean, because he, I think how hard-hearted he had to be to confront mm-hmm. this, this evil spirit and know that God had sent it to torment him. Why didn't he call out for help? Where, where is the repentance? Right. He never does that, not once. And, um, you know, there's no, 
actual relationship with Saul to God, it's always going to be through an intermediary. And there's going to be a problem with that, which we're going to get to the final story of that, which is awesome, which of course is the Witch of Endor. Yeah. And so, but King Nebuchadnezzar, he gets it. So I, I think that bringing up the comparison between the two is really an interesting thing. And we're not done talking about Saul's madness. Do you think there's any parallel between those two things and uh, Romans, uh, which chapter? <laughs> I'm going to need more to go uh, on. <laughs> where where uh, Paul talks about the, the Jews didn't receive him, so they're, he's taken the gospel to the Gentiles because they'll believe when you confronted with the, with the power of God. There very well might be. I, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, there very well might be because, yeah, when we see God moving in other nations and revealing himself with, to people from other nations, most of the time, unless they're locked in battle, but mm-hmm. most of the time there is a turn to God. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think all of that does foreshadow the fact that God is going to bring the entire world to him. And that it doesn't matter what your bloodline and genealogy is. And, you know, God's bigger than all of that. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to avoid talking about some Facebook discussions I've gotten on because <laughs> there, there's a lot of people who want to deny that God would ever allow anyone into the covenant community who was outside of Israel. And of course, we have, you know, Ruth is a prime example. And so, um, you know, there's lots of ways to explain that away. And it, it's. And they're all. Bunk. That's that's a good <laughs> theological term for it. Yeah, not our dads, but it's still a good one. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to turn the do not disturb on the computer, but I remembered it on mine. Anyway, that, that's fine. So, Christine too brought up um, this. This is Christine too, not Christine also. Exactly, numeral two, uh, ordinal well, two. I guess she is also Christine, but that's <laughs> the second. Questioner. Christine. Right, right. <laughs> and so she asked about the psychological and, and, and social, in, uh, psychological and social, um, can't even talk Ramifications? Now. Ramifications uh, is not the word I have written on the page. I wanted to say that word. It's interpretations. But oh, how, okay. how would this have been viewed in that worldview? Okay. And so, um, you know, I, I probably would have forgotten to have brought this up. My, my knee-jerk reaction is to say, as it was written, but I, that that sounds dismissive, and I don't mean it that way at all. Right. Um, but um, I'm sure that there's more to it than just that. Well, there, honestly, there's not. <laughs> I mean, there, there's 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 really not. Uh, where where things start to get cloudy is when we start moving away from the biblical text and we start moving into this age of enlightenment. And where we start trying to see everything through a scientific or organic mechanism causing these these things to happen. And sorry, Christine. <laughs> no, no, no. She I, I, she's the kind of person who gets it. And she's she's asking for clarification's sake. But um, there is this claim out there that says that mental illness is described as demon possession and anything described as demon possession is really mental illness mm-hmm. and the, the ancients didn't have a way to understand that. I've definitely heard that school of thought. Oh my goodness. And it's, it's of course, bad. Of course, then we, yeah, well, it's bad. <laughs> then we have the other side of it where, and 
you, it's in your notes, isn't it? Uh-huh. Uh, but it, we have the other side of it that whenever somebody has mental illness, the uh, instinct of a lot of people in a lot of churches is to assume that it's demonic and try to, to pray the mental illness away. Uh, yeah, um, that's not good. So, okay, I'm going to stick with my notes. But yes, that was actually where I was getting ready to go, right So right there. So, uh, yeah. But- it, it's the ditches. I mean, when we start going to extremes or adopting a an either-or position with a lot of theological matters mm-hmm. instead of a both-and, then, then we wind up going to extremes and falling into the ditch and losing sight of the path or the road that we're supposed to be on. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, let's just bare-bone mechanics of it. We are flesh and blood. We have a spirit. We have a soul. We have hearts. We have minds. All of these things work together to create who we are as a being in totality. If you remove one element of that, then we aren't who we are. Mm. And so uh, we can't dismiss any of it because, right. you know, if, if your brain's broken, which, you know, sometimes that happens, uh, if your heart's broken, it's going to impact everything else. I mean, think about, you know, Remember back in high school, whenever the the cute boy or girl broke up with you and did they physically hurt you? No, but there was physical pain involved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so we're that interconnected with these different parts of ourselves that that different things can manifest in in all areas of our being. Right. So anyway, that was kind of a a side note that I didn't plan on going. But um, I think we've already established, like you said, that. Saul's case was not demon possession. So, um, matter of fact, the only time that you can really say that Saul was possessed was when the Holy Spirit took him over and when God changed his heart and turned him into a new man. Yeah. And certainly not a, a demonic event. And by the way, it's going to happen again. So stay tuned. Well, um, and, and, and there's actually, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember right, there's not any record in the Old Testament of possession as recorded even in the new testament no no there's there's not and that's the reason why the new testament has the appearance of demons and the idea of possession has left so many people baffled and you really have to dig into second temple lit and you've got to go Mm -hmm. into those outside sources to see how the culture and society viewed uh what was going on now uh those sources need to be handled with kid gloves and you need to be careful with them Mm because not all of them are reliable because they're not all inspired scripture, and even those that may have been inspired in the moment did not have the protection of canonization. Mm-hmm. So anyway, don't want to harp on that too much, but I can't leave it out because I see too many people focusing way too much on Second Temple Lit and forgetting you need to be measuring it against the Bible. Yep. So while I say, yes, study, look for what's in there, never at the expense of uh, forgetting what's in the Bible itself. So I think we've also, um, it's not demon possession. I think the text itself proves that it's not organic. Um, and I found this really great paper. I mean, it was just, it's awesome, by Reverend Michael Tanner. And his paper is King Saul and the Stigma of Madness. Um, I will try to get the link up. Uh, I think that one was behind a paywall. So I, I can give you a link on it, but... If you really want it, you have to pay for it. Uh, well, that's the thing. But not I, us. <laughs> well, if you go to uh, Joster, mm-hmm, um, Joster.com, you can get six free articles a month. And so if 
it is behind a paywall. That's the paywall it's behind. Okay. So, and right now with the COVID stuff, they are giving a hundred free articles a month. So yeah, <laughs> I've been making use of that. Oh, I wish I had time for that. <laughs> it's, it's awesome. Uh, but anyway, uh, in his paper, he says that to claim that Saul's madness is organic or mental illness is to let God off the hook. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that appeals to a lot of people because we don't like the idea that God is going to do something that might hurt or make us uncomfortable or, you know, have some kind of negative result. But we see that over and over again when God will, will use things to, to bring about his purpose or to try to bring someone to repentance. And I think that's what's going on with Saul. But, um, you know, God is fully credited with the events both in Saul's life and in Nebuchadnezzar's life. There, there's no mention of demons. There's no mention of uh, mental illness. And that's especially clear in uh, Deuteronomy 28 when that verse where God says, I'll do it to you. Yeah. You know, I will strike you with madness. And so the thing is, we have words in Hebrew for demons. We have words in Hebrew for spiritual beings that serve God. Mm-hmm. And we have words in, in Hebrew for, for this mad type of ranting and raving that might go on. And the words that are used to describe Saul and Nebuchadnezzar make it clear that this is a spiritual being sent by God, making his reality real. Uh, manifest on this earth might be another way to put it. But there are some really interesting ramifications that Tanner brought out. And one of them is that Saul remains king until his death. Mm-hmm. No one tries to remove him. And I, I love that. Not even David tries to take his life or stop him from being king, despite the fact he's considered mad. He, he's considered to, to be unfit to be a king, even by his own servants. They, they realize that he's not competent, but they never once attempt to remove him from that position. Hmm. Yeah, his servants don't, not only don't try to remove him, they actually try to find ways to help him. Remember, they suggest, let's mm-hmm. get a musician. David, fully aware that he's the next king, that as soon as Saul's gone, he gets to step into that position. He tries to help Saul. And so within this context of the Old Testament, madness, melancholy, depression, or even possession is not a reason for exclusion. And I had not thought about that. And Tanner points out that anytime Jesus is in a situation with a demon-possessed person, he goes to them. He doesn't run away from them. So I, I thought, man, that is, that's powerful because so often when we see someone who's you know, acting crazy, our, our response is to pull away mm-hmm. and, and to fear for our safety. And you know, within the church, so often mental illness is seen as punishment for sin. Whether it's organic or demon possession, it doesn't matter what they think the mechanism is. They think that you only get that way if you don't have enough faith. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those of us who have dealt with mental illness, that's not the case. And that has, I have never met a Christian who's dealt with mental illness who has not told me how much time they have spent in prayer while they're in the depths of it, wrestling through it, asking God to get them through. You know, mm-hmm. allow them to find a way to get past this. 
And, you know, if you think it's because they don't pray enough, you just don't know. You haven't been there. And so, and, and, you know, the church likes to give a lot of really interesting advice, and it can be good advice, but it's not always helpful. You know, you need to pray more. You need to have more faith. You need to root out that sin. You need to be obedient. Those are all good things to do. I'm not knocking Right, yeah. Definitely good things to do, but yeah, it's sometimes, you know, sometimes God has given us other ways to work with these things. Exactly. And the thing is, I mean, we don't have this reaction whenever somebody breaks an arm or has diabetes or mm-hmm. needs reading glasses. We, we don't tell them these things. We, we actually support and try to find ways to, to hopefully be kind and make it easier on them to be with us when they're dealing with stuff. And just because it's the brain that's malfunctioning and not, you know, your pancreas or your thyroid or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, whatever, your, your blood pressure, then why is this? It shouldn't be any different. It, it shouldn't be any different. The brain is an organic thing. It, it's part of us. Our bodies malfunction all the time. And if we some, for, for some reason think the brain should be exempt... I mean, mine's malfunctioning right now. I mean, (laughs) well, when you said your body's malfunction all the time, you had a body had a body malfunction, and then I was thinking, then then I thought wardrobe malfunction, (laughs) and I was like, that's just. I don't think we need to talk about that. No, it's the word. It's just that came out of my brain somehow. (laughs) Talk about a brain malfunction, right (laughs) there. There it is. But, you know, here, here's my thing, because y'all, y'all know that uh, I think everybody's pretty aware that one of the things that gets on my last nerve is inconsistencies. And, um, you know, if you're going to sit there and tell this to somebody who has a mental illness and has been brave enough to let you know that they have a mental illness. And by the way, there's way more people with mental illness, both diagnosed and undiagnosed than you are aware of. Right. And if you're undiagnosed, you probably are one <laughs> who needs a diagnosis. But, um, you know, and I, I, I'm not throwing stones, but you, be consistent. I want you to go up to the guy wearing glasses and tell him that there's sin in his life. And I want you to tell him he needs to be more obedient. I, I, I do. I, I want you to. I do not recommend this strategy. <laughs> Please, no, I'm talking total tongue in cheek. I, I am not, <laughs> you, you know. <laughs> But I mean, it's ridiculous. Think of the kid with type one diabetes. Let's, let's do the inverse, though. Stop right going to the people with mental illness and telling them yeah. that it's because of sin or it, what it's have you. Ridiculous, uh, because the Bible never says mental illness is a is a is caused from sin. Now it it does say that God, you know, He gives spiritual ramifications and and discipline and things like that to to bring us back into line. Yeah, of course. But as far as, you know, to say that, you know, I'm bipolar because I'm in sin, well, tell me which one it is. I want to get rid of it sure. so I can get rid of it. I mean, and that's the thing. I, I, you already feel helpless enough when you deal with a mental illness. You don't need somebody else piling on because that just doesn't help. It's not what David did to Saul. It's not what Saul's servants did to him. And it's certainly not what Jesus did to the people who came to seek help from him. Right. So if you want a good biblical example, there you go. Be kind, be considerate, treat people the way you want them to treat you. It hey, really is simple. Jesus said something along those lines once. He's a good person to quote because you know you're never wrong that way. <laughs> Fair <laughs> so, enough. But 
Okay, so that kind of wraps up what I have on on that. Um, I, I, it's a fascinating story, and there's even more things that are out there written on it. I mean, if you want to know more, just just go Google and start looking. Uh, if you want to question some sources or have some doubts about some sources, contact me. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll try to help through that. So we're getting ready to launch into probably the best known story of. Um, of the whole book of Samuel, if not the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's so well known that it's become a figure of speech within uh, the English language. When we talk about a David and Goliath situation, the underdog, the big guy, the little guy, mm-hmm. all of that flows back to chapter 18, or sorry, chapter 17 of Samuel. And um, it, it's, okay, so I'm going to be really honest. I didn't want to do this. I know. <laughs> I did not. I, I know you know. I think you've mentioned it before on the air. Have I? Okay. Yeah. No, I, I, it was hard for me to start even digging into this chapter uh, because I felt like it was so done. And, you know, the thing is, when we are so familiar with a Bible story that we think it's done, it, it kind of gets that set in stone quality and we think we mm-hmm. know everything about it that we need to know. Well, I've got 91 pages of notes that shows that I was an idiot. And so um, there was way more to learn about than what I even began to realize. And uh, honestly, I, I'm excited to go through it now. Uh, but I should begin with a reminder, we are in the book of Samuel. Samuel has a lot of difficulties. Sure. Because the Masoretic text and the Septuagint do not match up. So the Masoretic text is far shorter than what we have from the Septuagint. So, you know, there's a school of thought that says the Masoretic is a summary of the Septuagint, trying to to shorten the story because the book was already so long. Uh, Sounds like a terrible way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, it sounds very inconsistent with what we know of. Right. I mean, seriously, <laughs> when have any of the rabbis or anyone involved in this stuff tried to shorten anything? <laughs> Not many. I mean, go read the Talmud. <laughs> then you have pages and pages of of stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, things that you never even considered. I but I mean... like, that, that just sounds... Not at all the way they would do things. Yeah, yeah. So the second train of thought is that the Septuagint actually is an expansion based on other traditions that have been brought in. Now that I could see. I could, I could buy that, yeah. But uh, either way, we just... Was there any tiebreaker in the Dead Sea Scrolls? No. <laughs> of course not. No, but you know... Come on, Qumran. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, because by the time we get to the end of this, we're actually going back to the Dead Sea Scrolls. But this is, like I said, this is Samuel. So we want to remember that there are, there are difficulties. So the fact that we even begin with this, you know, the story that we know everything about, mm-hmm. and we start off right off the bat with difficulties, uh, which really aren't going to make a, a big deal. I just wanted to like, let people know they're here, and we'll, we'll talk about it when we get there. Again, well, that's, that's what we do. We don't shy away from the difficult. We try not to, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, this, this story is an epic story. It, it does um, play a pivotal role within the, the formation of the nation of Israel. And it, it would have been very normal for there to be a lot of oral traditions to grow up around it. And, and there are some, and we're going to talk about a few of the more interesting ones. 
But really, even though there's the difficulties, the differences are pretty superficial. The meat of the story is still there. Uh, it's just kind of, you know, the, the, the side dishes might be a little different. So yeah. it, it's not a um, huge problem. So other complications. We have three possible versions of this story within the Bible itself. Okay. So the Samuel 17 is the first one. Second Samuel 21, 55 through 22 is the second. Second Samuel, yeah. First Chronicles 24 through 8. And the details in all three of these accounts differ. And um, the other two... And, and, and then you have the changes in the Masoretic and the Septuagint mm-hmm. on top of that. On top of that. So we're looking at, what, six different versions <laughs> right. of the one story? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Um, now, on the two... We're, we're going to talk about why this isn't a big deal and actually some very likely solutions. But the other two accounts attribute Goliath's death to someone other than David. Okay. And, um, and like I said, we're going to talk about those differences, but I'm going to wait until we get to those passages because there is so much just in this passage. But I don't want anyone to think that we're ignoring them because so often we're taught one version of the story and we're never told that there's even the possibility that there might be a different, um, a, a different story. So uh, this is because we have the different accounts, the second one in Second Samuel and then the one in Chronicles, I wanted to make a couple of notes on Chronicles because Chronicles is going to start showing up more and more in our discussions mm-hmm. because First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, which remember those are all one book in the originally. Yeah. Those were written by somebody different than who wrote Chronicles. And even though they cover a lot of the same events, they're they're written from a very different worldview. Yeah, and, well, and and I think I, I believe it was Dr. Brand, Dr. Marion Brand. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was talking. I think if I remember the way she said this right, is that the writers had two different purposes in mind. Mm-hmm. And of course, one is, you know, uh, first, you know, the Book of Samuel uh, was to explain to us how we lost if we were God's chosen people by like showing like how terrible we th- right. they had become and how they'd forgotten their ways, and then. Um, Chronicles was written to Jews in exile, trying to get them to come back and be God's people and being like, hey, look how great we were when we were a kingdom. Exactly. Exactly. And this is the reason why in Samuel, you know, when you talk about King David, you've got all of his outlaw days, you know, where he's running with the Philistines. We've got the story of Bathsheba. We've Mm -hmm. got the murder of Uriah. Uh, We have physical, you know, he's physically weak Mm -hmm. as an old man. All of that's in Samuel. They, they put in all of it, the lumps, bumps, warts, you know, everything is, is there mm-hmm. on display, even in the hero, David, you know, the most amazing man next to maybe Moses in the Old Testament. Now, Chronicles, they don't, the writer chose not to include any of those unfavorable details. Right. And, and like you said, it was to entice the, the Israelites who were in exile to come back. I mean, they had established lives in these other lands. And, you know, they had homes, they had businesses, they had gardens and fields. And they're just supposed to get up and, and return to a place that they never saw to begin with. You know, grandma and grandpa talked about it, or mom and dad may have talked about it, but they never lived there. Yeah. And so Chronicles really is about... Uh, stirring up national pride and, and a call to celebrate the unique identity of being an Israelite, even in the midst of these other lands. And 
so as a book, it begins by opening up with nine chapters of genealogies, which is another reason why we're not doing chronicles, uh, because <laughs> um, it, it really it, it it traces the beginning of Israel right back to Adam, mm-hmm. and the book will end with Cyrus declaring that the temple should be rebuilt. So it, it covers the entire span of the nation of Israel th- up to that point. Sure. And so um, David and Solomon in particular are presented as the pinnacle of Israelite achievement. They are the ones who, who man, they, they built the temple. Yeah. You know, what else could you want? What could be more appealing? What does, you know, what is Ezra and Nehemiah calling the nation back to Israel? What do they want to do? They want to rebuild the temple. They want to regain the splendor of the Davidic monarchy. And uh, David and Solomon are also presented as always being obedient and submissive to God, and that their their grandeur and their glory is because of the submission to God. And there's a constant refrain in, in uh, Chronicles, all of Israel, because all of Israel needs to reunite. They need to come back. Uh, yeah, I got you. And so that's, it's very much a, uh, a book that's calling the nation to repentance, even as they celebrate uh, their nation, um, and you know to reclaim that lost glory. So, like I said, whenever Samuel and Chronicles overlap, we're going to pause and we'll kind of examine how the stories are the same, and, and we're going to examine how they're different, and we're going to talk about you know what we can learn by con- comparing and contrasting, basically. And we're also going to try to look at the uh, the psalms that uh, play into. We're going to have such a fun time doing that. <laughs> well, yeah, and then by the time we get to the end of the book, I mean, we're to the end of uh, Samuel and Kings and all of those, we're going to start getting into the prophets. So we're going to bring in them. Yeah, I'm going to be that madman with all the strings everywhere. By the time it's over, I'm, I'm with. for it. <laughs> so. Um, We'll get into the first part of our, our chapter. It's, we're going to be here for a little bit. <laughs> so oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, verses 1 and 3, this is chapter 17. We're given the description of the battlefield. That's, that's what we're laid out. We're given, you know, we're, it's the set. Mm-hmm. And so we're in the valley between uh, the Philistines and the Israelite army, and each of them have encamped on opposite sides of the valley. The valley is called the Valley of Elah, uh, it's a strategic location. It's the, the the main thoroughfare into the nation of Israel. And to capture this would have meant that the Philistines could have easily captured the rest of the nation. And so protecting it was of primary importance. I mean, this, is, you know, this is the one key for either side to win. So literally the name Valley of Elah means Valley of the Sacred Tree. We really don't know any more than that. We've talked about trees and why they're important. Uh, but I think that was kind of an interesting name there. And you kind of wonder whose tree, what tree, what are they doing there? Why are they and, sacred? Yeah. The uh, Bible doesn't give us any of those things. So I'm just throwing out my questions so they can bother other people in the middle of the night like <laughs> they do me. So, okay. <laughs> but then verse four through seven, uh, we get a detailed description of Goliath. He's the champion. He's Goliath of Gath. Uh, if you remember, Gath is one of the cities that when the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, that 
um, the ark was in. Sure. And he, they were afflicted with tumors. So, you know, Goliath and his cohorts were not people who were unaware of what God was capable of, but evidently, you know, they, you know, worked themselves up into enough of a tizzy that they forgot or they didn't care anymore. And then we're told after, you know, where Goliath is from, we're, we're told about his height. So here's one of those contradictions. In the Masoretic text, he is nine foot nine inches. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, pretty tall. Considerable. Yeah. Uh, taller than a lot of people's ceilings in their homes. Yeah. And so um, in the Septuagint, he's six foot six inches. Now, today that's tall, but it's not gigantic. Yeah. But back then it would have been very tall. It would have been very tall. I mean, six six is still considerably tall uh-huh. in, in today's standards, but it's not like... It's not freakish. Right. And, um, you know, we might tease somebody about it, but it's, it's not something that anyone's ashamed of. I haven't met a six foot six man who, who was ashamed of his height. Um, you know, the, the specific measurements really don't matter. It, the point is he was bigger. Sure. And I, I remember uh, a few years ago, I think you were on this trip. Uh, we were kids. No, my kids were kids. You may not have been on this trip. I don't remember. Anyway, got to go to the Alamo. and they had, I haven't been there yet. No. Okay. So they have Davy Crockett's vest in there. Mm-hmm. My daughter could have worn it, but not me. I mean, and you think of Davy Crockett. I mean, you think of John Wayne playing Davy Crockett. And, right. you know, you don't think uh, of somebody who, you know, this squirrel-sized man. Uh, but according to the vest, he wasn't that large. And, it, you know, food is just different. Nutrition's different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so people do tend to go taller today. Uh, the average Israelite by the, about this time was about 5'7 to 5'9. So, you know... Still a pretty good height. Um, they weren't tiny people. But no. at the same time, you know, you put a six foot six person beside them, um, there's gonna be quite the contrast. Yeah. Now, I personally do lean towards the Masoretic. I think probably the Septuagint folks said this sounds a little too outlandish for anyone to buy, so <laughs> we need to kind of tone it down just <laughs> a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Maybe, maybe not. I mean, like I said, that's my speculation. But the reason why I lean towards that is in the rest of the list of descriptors were given about Goliath. So he has a helmet of bronze. He has a coat of mail. This is like the scale type armor mm-hmm. that you can, um, the Greeks wore. Yeah. So it's not like chain mail, like medieval knights. It's, it's actually scales overlapping. Sure. Uh, he has bronze armor on his legs. He has a javelin of bronze between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear is like a weaver's beam. So that's not necessarily referring to size. It's referring to the fact that there was a loop on the end. And so um, they're thinking that this may not actually be a javelin. It could be more like a scimitar. Okay. And so uh, that actually makes more sense. Uh, But here's the thing. His spearhead, it weighs 15 pounds. It's 600 shekels of iron is what the, the... uh, Bible says that means nothing to me, but 15 pounds. 
for a spearhead. Yeah, and if you've ever tried to throw anything that's 15 pounds, it's not exactly easy. Yeah, so this is the reason why I lean more to the Masoretic than the Septuagint, because that is a detail that both the Septuagint and the Masoretic keep identical. There's no difference there. Sure. So, um, and his shield bearer goes before him. Now, his shield bearer would have been carrying a shield that was the full body shield, head to toe. Mm-hmm. You know, he probably would have had that specially made. And think how big his shield bearer would have had to have been in order to carry Goliath's shield. Right. Uh, Goliath, Goliath himself probably would have been carrying a small or um, possibly round shield whenever he advanced. Mm-hmm. But typically, he would not have carried the large uh, shield himself. So the level of detail description, I mean, we've talked about this before. Anytime you get lots of details, it's significant. We're supposed to be in awe of this guy. We're supposed to pause and actually think about, oh my goodness, there is essentially a tank heading towards mm-hmm. the, the army every day and think about how you would feel. And so um, it's, it's interesting to me that the description exactly corresponds with the description of the Greek heroes in the Iliad. And so this would have been uh, contemporary with the same time period that that was written. So these things were happening together. And the fact that the, the armor and the weaponry it is so identical. And we talked about, remember, the, the Philistines were probably from the Aegean region, mm-hmm. that, that they were connected with the Greeks. Um, Menelaus has a helmet of bronze. The Assyrian scale armor is uh, found on uh, Greek soldiers, and we actually have examples of that in the British Museum, um, the greaves, the legs that are covering mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. are described, they are specifically mentioned in the account of the Trojan War, and they are Aegean in origin. They're the ones who, who created wearing that kind of armor. Right. Uh, the javelin, like I said, more likely a scimitar. Um, so this is another... Um, weapon that would have come from a region outside of Israel and Canaan itself. And the, the iron spearhead, that was an interesting detail. The fact that it's iron, that was the latest technology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is expensive. Either Goliath himself is, you know, independently wealthy or the Philistines are paying good money to make sure that this guy is armed well. Well, if I was in charge of this group <laughs> and I had a guy who was that big, I definitely would make sure he was outfitted with the <laughs> best stuff he could t- he could get. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, if he was as strong enough to carry all this stuff, if you have someone who is strong enough to carry right? all of this stuff, <laughs> you're like, oh my goodness, we can give him everything and he can still, <laughs> still fight. That's going to be amazing because you got to imagine there's some guy who's probably not able to carry as much armor. Well, yeah, I, and, and that's the reason why, too. I mean, think, when you think of how heavy the armor is, this is why they have shield bearers. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is why Saul had one, why Jonathan had one, why David's going to have one. This stuff is heavy. All of it's heavy. I mean, we read the words, and we, we don't think about how heavy a bronze helmet would be. Right. Um, I've done some bronze casting. Yeah, I've seen your bronze casting. You probably dropped heavy. on your toe. <laughs> uh, I think I managed to avoid my toes. <laughs> Aaron's toes? Who'd, anyway, <laughs> but yeah. No, it's heavy. And can you imagine just wearing a bronze helmet around in, in Israel? Mm-hmm. I, I, that would just be miserable. But 
anyway, the point is that that we're we are supposed to pause, and it, we're supposed to to stop and have this vision of him, you know, moving forward, the clanking, the clunking, the you know, all the stuff. I, I could think of the rock monster and Never Ending Story. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of the imagery I get. Um, and now, if you if you've been a careful reader and you've been reading this sequentially, you haven't broken it up over weeks, you should already know what your proper response is. Your proper response to this is, oh, well, that's just how he looks because God doesn't look on the outward appearance. He looks on the heart. So we, we know that we aren't supposed to look at what he looks like. Okay. We've already been given our directions. And, you know, the, the problem is that Goliath is saying some pretty bad things um, when, he, when he comes forward. And he, he's defying the God of Israel. And, you know, who is this guy who, who can defy the God of Israel? And the fact that anyone would have the audacity to say these things makes you realize how imposing he was the fact that you know you don't you would can think that anybody okay let me get the word straight you would think that anyone brave enough to actually say these things out loud mm-hmm. would be somebody who would make you afraid sure. i mean you know you just don't have a, a little snippy person a little wimpy guy saying things that a nation would stone you for uh, the things that God would, the God who sent tumors on his hometown it is so unimpressive to him that he, that he can't even, he can uh, say these things. I feel like my brain took a break. It's okay. Uh, so, okay. I, I followed you. Yeah. Because Goliath knew exactly what God was capable of. So, I mean, he had a reason to feel this confident is what I'm trying to say. Gotcha. So, uh, now part of the, the the missing puzzle pieces in the background of this are in those other two accounts that I brought up earlier. So when we talk about when those accounts talk about Goliath, we learn in Second Samuel twenty one eighteen that he's a son of Ratha or this one of the Rephaim, which we know the Rephaim from from the book of Judges and the book of uh, Joshua. In First Chronicles, where he's called the Rephaim specifically, and in Joshua. In Deuteronomy, we know that the Rephaim are giants, so we, you know, we're not surprised that this is his family line. And as a Rephaim, you know, he's not actually a Philistine; he's probably a mercenary paid by the Philistines to mm-hmm. fight on their behalf. Sure. And so, you know, these are um, these are not unknown entities to uh, to the nation of Israel. And so it's, it's kind of fitting that these, these giants resurface now. And the reason why it's fitting is because in all of the Old Testament, the, the main point of the story is to create sacred space. Mm-hmm. We begin with you know, the Garden of Eden, and when God creates a sacred space for Adam and Eve, then we get, um, we get the Nakash, we get the serpent showing up who is you know, going to destroy it and it's going to cause them to be removed from that sacred space. Mm-hmm. Whenever they return from is- to Israel from Egypt, we have the giants show up and prevent them from entering on- during the Exodus journey. Yeah. So the fact that we now have a giant show up 
is a tip-off as to what we should expect from David. And it's a foreshadowing of what David's ultimate mission is, and that is to recreate sacred space in the land of Israel. Israel itself is sacred, but there's going to be like an ultimate sacred sacred space that's going to unite the nation as one. Gotcha. And so okay. it bring them back into a relationship with God. And that permanent or, you know, it's supposed to be a permanent uh, sacred space here on the, the earth is also going to continue to undergo several attacks and, and several, um, it's going to be several things that go wrong there, both from outside sources and from sources within Israel until God finally takes it out. And ultimately, we know that the sacred space is going to be us as children of God and bodies that God dwells within and being mm-hmm. temples of the Lord. And that's going to help us look forward to Jesus' return and what uh, sorry, with Jesus' life and death. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the incarnation. <laughs> Thank you. That's the word I'm trying to. So anyway, that's that was the main point. That we've got this we've got this event where the Rephaim show up where an incarnate embodied intelligent evil plots to take out the nation of Israel and plots to take out any attempt to recreate sacred space. And, and I, I wish I had time to, to go into what all sacred space is, and maybe we can do that at some point. But really, what's so fascinating about the Old Testament is how that theme is with, woven throughout. And we as you know, New Testament believers who weren't schooled in these kinds of thoughts miss how significant it is to God that there be this place where his glory is manifest and revealed mm-hmm. to, to those who love and believe in him. Well, and that's uh, you. You were talking about the the giants show up. So the you know the giants are you know they originate in Genesis six. Mm-hmm. You know as a as a means to try to further th- further defile humanity. Mm-hmm. And then you have their descendants show up, right? When when the Israelites try to go into the land, mm-hmm. then you have them push back again here with David and Goliath. And then you see the disembodied Rephaim and the demonic showing up and pushing back against Christ's work. Yeah. So it's. That all makes a lot of sense uh, it, like when you, yeah, and, and it, you begin to see how David's life really is that pivotal moment in a lot of ways, where you are looking back from everything that's happened before, through from Genesis to Exodus, you know, the conquest of Canaan, I, all of this stuff that was going on. But you also see how it foreshadows everything that Jesus is going to do, and how Jesus is greater than David, and David. You begin to understand why he celebrated such a great king, mm-hmm. but why he is insufficient as a human to to accomplish all the things that God would have him accomplish. And so it's it's amazing to me that we will celebrate David, but we don't always get why we celebrate David. Sure. And I think that's going to be one of the things that we begin to see as we go through this this story of Samuel and looking at this book that is so it's so quick to, to remind us that David wasn't perfect mm-hmm. and to remind us of David's flaws, that, that we can't get caught up too much in any kind of awe over him, but we can get caught up in the awe of a God who would use such a flawed and frail human being in order to accomplish something so wonderful as you know, carving out this nation from a bunch of nomads who still hadn't figured out who in the world they were after this period of captivity in, in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And I, I think sometimes we forget, you know, patriotism is, is so 
big in our country. And we're so used to the idea of, oh, this is my national identity. I'm an American. I'm free. I get to do this and that. And you, it wasn't the same in Israel. They, they, weren't, they weren't closely united. They weren't under one banner. The only time they really joined together is whenever they had an outside enemy pushing in. And even then, it may just be certain tribes that join in the fight. It's not a national endeavor to, to protect each other. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they are able to come together under David and have some kind of solid existence and not just kind of be this mishmash of, of just whoever, you know, might be camping next door is a huge testament to his power. Yeah. And so I think we need to kind of really work at pushing back at the fact that this was a time when people still lived in tents. This was a time when we still had major nomadic communities mm-hmm. where cities really weren't beginning to be built until David became the king and became the one who said, hey, guys, we're going to define ourselves, not just our geographic borders, but mm-hmm. also our internal boundaries and borders and who we are as a people. And he really pushes that. And one of, of course, one of the ways he does that is by writing the Psalms where people declare over and over again who they are, who their God is, what God has done for them. And this is where we begin. And it's when David reenacts the conquest of Canaan by fighting and conquering one of the Rephaim who scared the children of Israel and kept Mm -hmm. them out of the land to begin with. Mm -hmm. David runs to the battle and says, my God's bigger, which is the response that all of Israel should have had. Instead, we have this one little shepherd guy who says, I can do it. So this is what we're launching into. (laughs) Yeah. And that's what we're going to cover next week, right? Maybe. I don't know if we're going to get that far. <laughs> okay. Well, it's a long road from uh, both sides of the mountain, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, well, cool. Um, well, yeah, there's a lot of setup in there. So, and there's more. <laughs> curious to see where we go next. Yeah, I know that we're probably not anywhere near based on what you said. So, everyone out there, if you are curious to see what happens, come back next week. Um, in the meantime, if you want to be part of the conversation, hit us up at Raven Creek SC on all the social media, ravencreeksc.com, uh, where you can find links to basically everything we do and or reference. Um, well, on the show anyway, that's all you care about, right? So uh, I hope so. And <laughs> <laughs> don't watch us too close. Anyway, um, we appreciate you being here. Hope you had a good time, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Oddities Podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next.